Just before we get into our sermon and our text, let me ask you a question. Do you know our purpose statement here at Hamilton Road? I was going to ask the guys at the back to put up a PowerPoint slide, and I thought, no, that's, that's too easy. We've been looking at it here for years. So do we know our purpose statement? We've captured in one short sentence. It's to help us remember our calling. It's to keep us on track with our work. Do you know what it is? Somebody started yes. Does somebody want to have a go? Go, go ahead. Somebody shouted out. Give them a round of applause. That's our purpose statement. We want to see unbelieving people become faithful followers of Jesus Christ. I tell you that not because we're going to take a week off our sermon series in the Sermon on the Mount to think about our purpose statement, but it's rather to show you right at the outset that this passage we're going to look at today is about our purpose. Jesus tells his disciples what their purpose is. He tells them what disciples are for. Before we get there, let's quickly remind ourselves of the story so far. We're in Matthew chapter 5, the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we started by asking, who's your teacher? Verses 1 and 2, Matthew goes to some lengths to, to show us that Jesus is a teacher. Right throughout his gospel, he builds the case to show us that Jesus is the best teacher of all. Matthew invites us right at the outset to be clear that we're making Jesus Christ our teacher. Then he asks us, who's in the class? Who, who gets to be with Jesus Christ, this best teacher of all? Who, who's invited to learn from him about life in the kingdom of heaven? And we find some surprising answers in, in verses 3 to 6. The kingdom's not for the strong and the successful, the wealthy and the popular. It's for the poor and the poor in spirit. Those who are downtrodden, those who are longing for justice. Jesus, in the, the Sermon on the Mount, invites us into an upside-down world. The unfortunates, by worldly standards, get to be the happy, the blessed. They, along with everyone else, are invited to the kingdom of God. Last week, Neil helped us to look at the second half of the Beatitudes, and we noticed that when we, we begin to enter into this way of life, once we start to live by kingdom values, things like mercy and purity of heart and, and peacemaking, once we start to live that way, we find ourselves persecuted. But even then, even as we're persecuted, we can be deeply happy, we can be blessed. Jesus tells us that when we live like that, we're walking in the footsteps of the prophets. We're identifying with Jesus himself. This morning we come to, at least for us, a fourth lesson in Jesus' discipleship curriculum. It's a huge lesson. In the space of just four verses, Jesus gives us two of his most unforgettable images and some of his most profound teaching. As I've already said, Jesus is turning now to the question of purpose. What are disciples for? He gives his disciples their purpose in the kingdom of God. 
Our family recently watched Emilio Estevez's 2006 film, Bobby. It tells the story of Robert Kennedy, the brother of JFK. Bobby was shot just like his brother in the early morning hours of June the 5th, 1968 in the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. The movie's kind of like a human interest story. The assassination happens just in a few minutes at the end of the film. What the film does instead is it, it shows us the lives of 22 only gently related characters who are in the hotel that day. It really gives you a window into America in the late 1960s, the social dynamics in those times. One scene in the hotel kitchen gives us an insight into the racial tensions that, that people are experiencing. So an argument breaks out between an African-American head chef and a Mexican a kitchen hand. The Mexican is full of anger at his lot in life, the racism that he experiences all the time. He comes across as a guy, maybe you know people like this, he wouldn't be happy unless he was complaining, unless he was grumpy. That, that, that's what brought him his joy, a deeply unattractive character. And at one point in the dialogue, the head chef, played by Lawrence Fishburne, he, he challenges this Mexican colleague and he shows him where he's going wrong in life. You know your problem, Miguel? You've got nothing to offer. You've got no poetry. You've got no light. You've got no one looking at you saying, man, look at Miguel. I want some of what he's got. Poetry and light. People longing for what we've got. That's what we're thinking about today. As I've said before in our short passage here this morning, Jesus gives us a couple of unforgettable images, pr probably some of the best known images in the whole of the Bible and some of his most profound teaching. He begins by telling us, verse 13, that we're salt. You are the salt of the earth. If, if you've heard these metaphors before, you you probably feel you know them. Actually, the, the longer I've known them, the more I thought I need to be careful to understand what Jesus means, because I think salt and light were used somewhat differently in Jesus' culture than they are today. So the metaphors need a wee bit of care just to try and grasp them. We've gone off salt a little, in, even in my lifetime. I don't know if, if you, you know what I'm talking about. I grew up as a kid in the days of salt and shake crisps, do you remember them? So you got, you got your bag of plain crisps, you opened it up, inside was a bag of salt, and you, you tipped the salt in and then shook your bag. If you were really naughty, you reached for some extra salt, and we wouldn't really do that so much anymore, would we? Um, we've learned that salt's maybe not that good for us in those large quantities, hardens the arteries, you know? So what does Jesus mean when he is talking, telling his disciples that they're salt? Well, e even in Jesus' day, salt had a lot of different uses. So it was used to purify things in the days before disinfectant. If you wanted to uh, clean a wound, I guess, you'd, you'd have rubbed salt into it to, to clean it. 
or does Jesus want his followers to purify things in some way? People use salt then to preserve meat. Are God's people to act as preservatives? Are we, are we supposed to stop things from going bad in the first place? In those times, salt was used as well as fertilizer. Um, does Jesus want his disciples to help grow things? Is that what he's got in mind? Uh, we use salt as flavoring. I'm sure they maybe did in, in those times too. Does, does Jesus want us to, to flavor and influence the world that we live in for, for his glory? It's hard to know which of those functions he means, and, and maybe we don't need to choose one. Maybe we're best to keep the metaphor pretty broad. All of these functions of salt, cleaning, preserving, fertilizing, flavoring, they all seem to me like good pictures of what kingdom people should be like in the world in which we live. One thing's for sure, salt was really important in the world in which Jesus lived, absolutely vital. Salt made life better in lots of ways. So Jesus is telling his disciples, become important to the society that you live in and make it much, much better the salt of the earth. <clears throat> I have quite a, a surprising person in mind when I think of who's inspired me most or taught me most about uh, being salt. I first got to hear about Jurgen Klopp, or Kloppo, as he's called in Germany, um, in the spring of 2013. Uh, the, his Borussia Dortmund team had just knocked Real Madrid out of the Champions League and we're heading towards uh, an all-German final against Bayern Munich. I first got to hear Klopp himself speak uh, just before that match. There was an interview before the Champions League final held that year at Wembley, uh, and the TV company had just done a piece on the Dortmund team, really inspiring. They interviewed the players, uh, they asked them about this incredible team spirit that they shared, and one of the players talked about Klopp and he just said, we'd run through walls for the boss. And then the interviewer came to Klopp himself and my jaw dropped when I heard him speak. At one point in this interview, uh, it probably has a worldwide audience of about a third of a billion people. He says this, I always hope the room is better when I walk in. It's normal, I'm a Christian. So he's talking about football, it's the biggest match of his life, but he doesn't for an instant forget his purpose. As a disciple of Jesus Christ, he's salt. To be salt, to make the room a better place for God's glory. Jesus is adamant that this isn't optional, this isn't for some Christians. He, he tells us as much. Look at what he says, remainder of verse 13. A disciple who isn't doing people good, who isn't blessing people in Jesus' name, they're about as useful as salt that isn't salty. Like what is salt if it's not salty? It's, it's dust. You put it in the bin. That kind of salt's a waste of time. And by implication, Jesus says, so is a, so is a disciple. 
who isn't blessing people. Uh, Folks, I'm sure this has a personal application. Every one of us who claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ, we can be asking ourselves the question, how can I this week make the room a better place? My office, my staff room, my classroom, my sports club, my family, the residential home where I live. How is it better because I'm there in the name of Jesus? I'm persuaded, though, that there's a corporate application for this, too. We are God's people together here in Bangor in this town. By God's reckoning, we're the most important community in in this borough. We're here to make Bangor a better place for God's glory. We're here to bring healing and goodness to this community, showing all the wonderful flavors of life with God. We are the salt of the earth. That's what disciples are for. And that's why I get so excited about some of the things that I hear about Hamilton Road these days. But Bangor's a place for one reason or another that's always had its fair share of immigrants. Um, we led the way when we arrived in the, in the 80s. So we've been hosting English classes here for years. English Corner. As more refugees and asylum seekers are arriving, we're bringing new salt to the table. We're offering our kitchen, you don't know this, we're offering our kitchen so that families who are are living in places that they're being given food that they can't eat for religious reasons or even for dietary reasons, they can't eat it. And we're just trying to see if we can help them cook some of their own cuisine. Some, some of the men are coming into our hall to play five aside. Folks, we're making the room, this town, a better place. Isn't that wonderful? Let's keep moving. Jesus says that we're light Again, I think we need a moment to check that we understand this metaphor. Um, as I've reflected over the years on Jesus' light metaphor, I've, I've come to the conclusion that it does mean something quite different than, than what it means for us today. We have so much light around us compared to even two or three generations ago. We have instant light in our homes at the flick of a switch. I'm constantly reaching into my pocket for light if I'm out and about and then so on my phone, I just touch the button and I can light anything up. Our, our streets and our towns and our cities, they're, they're lit up right through the night. We have so much light around us that, that we use the term light pollution, and, and it's a real thing. Too much light. That wasn't the case in Jesus' day. And certainly not for his audience on a Galilean hillside. Light was expensive. Nobody had the resources to simply burn a lamp indiscriminately right through the night. Your day would have been much more in step with the sun. You'd have been up at the first glimpse of light to make the most of that light, to, to, to begin your work and live your day. Your day would wind down as the sun set because it would become extremely difficult to do anything that required you to be able to see. You'd eke out the day to really make the most of it. If you had a lamp at all, you'd use it very, very sparingly. 
Imagine for a moment that you're a Galilean farmer and that you're calling to visit a friend in a neighboring village at night. No smooth roads, no pavements, no lighting. You, you stumble your way uh, across the countryside. Imagine your relief when you see that your friends left a lamp in their window, a light that would serve as a, a guide to help you on your way. Or imagine you're a fisherman. Uh, you fish on the lake at night because that's when, when people fish, that's when fish are caught. Any light that you have depends on the moon and disappears as soon as a cloud moves across it. Imagine what it would mean to you as you approach the shore and as you see that your, your, your wife, <clears throat> your wife, pardon me, has left a light on the windowsill, something to guide you home. A guide in the dark, a welcome home. That's what Jesus has in mind when he talks to his disciples and says, you are the light of the world. God has placed us in this world to be a guide to lost people, to help people find their way home. And it is all about finding their way home to him. Do, do you see that verse 16? Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and what? Glorify your Father in heaven. Us being salt and us being light isn't about having a, you know, being impressive for other people. It's about helping lost people find their way home. Over the years, uh, many people have, have been inspired by this suggestion that, that Jesus gives us that, that we're the light of the world. It's one of our favorite biblical images for a lot of people. It's their, one of their Bible highlights, something we can really identify with. The, the mistake we could make if we think of it in those terms is, is we imagine that Jesus has just introduced it, that it's just an idea that he thought of. He's, he's teaching and he has this great idea. That, that's, that's not the case. What Jesus is doing here is he's drawing his disciples into the always given purpose of God for his people. They were always intended to be the light of the world. From their earliest days, God intended his people to bless other people in his name and to guide them home. Let me show you very quickly a few Bible passages. You might want to, to write these references in your journal and look them up later. Abram, what was it he said to Abram? Genesis 12. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The, the salt conversation starts right there. Get out there, start blessing people in my name. What is it the Lord says to Moses in Exodus 19, just before he gives the Ten Commandments, as he's as he's constituting Israel as his people in the world, what is it he says? You're to be a kingdom of priests, people who bring people to me. So these are powerful. These are turning points in the life of God's people. This is what he says to them about their purpose. I suppose my question would be, how well did Israel do? Did they bless people? Is that their story? Were they priestly? Were they brilliant at bringing people to God? 
They were awful. Sometimes I ask people, give them a score out of 10. We usually go for one or two. Israel failed. But here's the thing. When God gives us a calling and we fail in it entirely, he doesn't throw us out. Remember we talked about this a lot in Genesis. Yes, we live in an avalanche of sin. Yes, we have created an avalanche of sin. But God's grace outruns the avalanche. And it continues and it continues and it continues to. What does God do with them? Well, he, he punishes them. He sends them into exile. But then he, he starts talking to them about their purpose in more beautiful terms than ever before. He says, it's not over. It's only just beginning. Isaiah 49, verse 6. He says, I'll give you as a light to the nations so that my salvation will reach the ends of the earth. Isaiah 60. Those verses which Susan read a moment ago. Arise, shine, for your light has come. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. That's what's going on here. When Jesus says, you're the light of the world, you know how this works, don't you? Before he says to them, you're the light of the world, he's going to take that identity himself. I am the light of the world. Israel couldn't do it, couldn't be what God made them to be, but now I've come. I'm the true Israel. I'm what a human being is supposed to be. Jesus, the light of the world, turns to these 12 anybodies, looks them in the eye, says, you're it. You are now the light of the world. Folks, this is what disciples are for. This is our calling. In, in a few weeks' time, we're going to have one of the world's foremost missiologists come and join us here, a man who's been a huge uh, influence on me, uh, Christopher Wright, uses a phrase which I just love. He says that God's people are missional magnets. That's, that's what we're for, to be a, a missional magnetic presence in the world. Let me say a last thing about these metaphors the salt and the light, I, because they're so familiar with me, I had to work quite hard to, to really see a little deeper and a little more. But one of the things that struck me is that they're metaphors of engagement. What, what do I mean about that? Well, when we talked about the salt, it has to be spread over those fields to fertilize it or, or over the meal to flavor it. it. It needs to be rubbed into the meat to preserve the meat or onto that surface to clean it. In the words of Rebecca Manley Pippert, we've, we've got to get out of the salt shaker. It's in a metaphor of engagement. Get in there. 
We need to allow God to rub us into the grain of our society. No more sitting on the sidelines. No more from a distance stuff. Get in there, get rubbed in. And the light metaphor, that that requires engagement too. The point that Jesus makes in in verses 14 to 15, if we're light, you you can't hide it. Don't, Don't hide it. Don't stick a bowl over it. Don't hide away in, in, in your church, in your church building, in, in your Christian subculture. There, there's light that's in you that needs to be in dark places. We're, we're actually, if we're doing our job, we're unhideable. That's what he says. We're like a city on a hill. Bangor needs to see Jesus in me and in you. There's two ways they won't see Jesus, it just occurs to me. One is if Jesus isn't in me, then they're not going to see him. But the other way is if Jesus is in me, but I'm hiding away. Jesus in me, out there in the dark places. That's what the calling is. Over the last few months, Alan, our clerk of sessions, been urging us uh, in, if we're having an evening meeting at church, to, to have it in the welcome center. Make sure the lights are on. Let people know that God's people are here. They're meeting for worship. They're meeting here for discipleship. They're meeting here for other kingdom activities. You know, in the last few weeks, e- even that, even that flicking the light switch on, it's been guiding people home. Earlier this year, a family came and joined us at an evening service because they'd fallen on desperate times and they wanted to find God somewhere. They drove around Bangor and they saw our lights on, they came in. Last Sunday morning, I was talking to a young man, heartbroken. He walked in here because he wanted to find God. Helping lost people find their way home. Helping them to become them faithful followers of Jesus Christ. That's our purpose. We're the light of the world. I started this morning with sharing that dialogue, which spoke so powerfully to me from that film. Do you remember it? One character tells another why they're so unattractive. You know your problem, Miguel? You've got nothing to offer, you've got no poetry. You've got no light. You've got no one looking at you saying, Ma'am, look at Miguel. I want some of what he's got. When I first heard that bit of dialogue, it stopped me in my tracks. Is that how people see me? Is that how people see the church of Jesus Christ in their town? Do they see only anger and judgmentalism and legalism and joyless duty? Is that what they're saying? Do you know your problem, Hamilton Road? You've got nothing to offer. Do you know your problem, Christoph Ebbinghaus? You've got no poetry. You've got no light. You've got no one looking at you saying, I want some of what you've got. Friends, we have the deepest poetry of all. 
we have the gospel of grace, the good news that our sins are paid for, that the kingdom of heaven's open for us to enter in. We have the light. We have the very presence of God promised us by the presence of Jesus Christ in us, his offer to make us more and more and more like him. As, as we learn to engage more and more around us, with the, sorry, with the people around us, let's pray for the day when we have people coming to us and saying, I've heard your poetry and I've seen your light. Now tell me, how can I have what you've got? Help me become a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. Or as Jesus puts it, let's pray that people may see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and its its power. Thank you for Jesus, our teacher, and thank you for his spirit present among us here to keep teaching us and to give us greater insight. Lord, thank you for this glorious calling that you've given us. You've allowed us to be those who represent you on earth. You have allowed us to be those who extend your invitation to men and women, boys and girls all around us. Lord, we're humbled and enthralled at the same time. But Lord, we're terrified too. So we pray you'd, you'd give us your spirit. We, we can't even begin this work unless your spirit does it. So we throw our lives open to you. We invite your presence and we say, Lord, come and make us what we were made to be. People who make the room a better place, people who are salty, people who light up this town for you and your glory. Amen. Our songs today have helped us 